And the motion picture is the most important art film ever devised by the human race. It is the, the art form that creates more empathy than any other. It creates our ability to step out of our own shoes. Welcome to the first official episode of the Great Movies Podcast, where we will be discussing all of the movies in Roger Ebert's collection of great movies. I'm Nick Fulton. I'm Dylan Quayer. And I'm Jana Gardner. And today we're going to be talking about the first movie in Roger, Roger Ebert's first great movies book, 2012, directed by Roland Emmerich, which was loosely based on the mind prophecy <laughs> <laughs> that the world would be ending in 2000. No, no, that's not what we're going to be talking about. We're actually going to be covering uh, the first movie that he wrote about, or the first movie that shows up in book one, which is the 1968 film 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, based on Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. It was shot by Jeffrey Unsworth and stars Keir Dulay, Gary Lockwood, and Douglas Rain as HAL 9000. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including winning Stanley Kubrick's only Oscar for Best Special Visual Effects. It was ranked number 15 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movies list, and number 6 on the 2012 Sight and Sound poll. And let's start out by listening to a clip from the movie. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Before we talk about the movie itself, let's go over what kind of baggage we each brought to the film. And Jana, I'm most curious to hear from you since it was, we discussed on our intro podcast, you actually hadn't seen this before. Um, so what were your expectations and anticipations coming into this movie? Sure. So, yeah, I had never seen it. And there were a few reasons for that, actually. Um, you know, I definitely heard it was good. One of the best movies ever. Super important. Super influential. Um, but I had also heard that it was very long and very slow. So I actually appreciated sort of having the homework assignment to watch it now for this project because um, I'm, you know, we'll get into it, but I'm very glad that I've seen it. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that on a random Friday or Saturday night when I was picking out a movie to watch that I thought, you know what, I want to sit down and watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> so I, I just, I my main hang up going into it was like, is this going to be super boring? Because that was kind of the reputation that I'd heard from it beyond that it was good, but that it was also very slow. Um, and also I kind of figured maybe I already knew everything I needed to know about it because I've seen 18 million parodies. I've seen 18 million clips. I was generally familiar with the major concepts, um, so I I sort of went in thinking, all right, we'll we'll see if it's as good as everyone says that it is. 
And Dylan, what about you? I know you'd seen this before. Um, what were your expectations coming into this rewatch? Into the rewatch? I don't I don't know if I had any expectations. I've probably seen this movie it's probably close to 10 or a dozen times now. I remember the first time I saw it, I was probably about 10. And the way my dad convinced me to watch it is he said that in space there's no sound and this movie has an explosion with no sound in space. And he compared it to the Death Star blowing up and imagine if the Death Star blowing up had no sound. So I thought I was going to get a big boom. And I (laughs) I remember when the explosion does happen that we'm sure we'll talk about later. It's tiny. (laughs) And I remember turning to my dad was like, is that it? And I think he was all excited like, yeah, that's it. That's it. I was like, the heck is this? Yeah, so that that's um, that was my expectations going into my first watch, at least. Um, I've also seen this in XD theaters, and my only expectation for this rewatch was it's not going to be the theater experience, because that was probably the best theater experience I've ever had besides Into the Spider-Verse, I think. Yeah, that was another question that I wanted to ask before we start about talk- talking about the movie proper, is how did you watch this um because i watched it on itunes they have a 4k copy that i bought for like five bucks at one point knowing that at some time in the future i would want to watch it so that's how i watched it but what about you guys yeah i did the itunes 4k rental also and then tried to like you know make the room as dark as i could considering it was a saturday afternoon but like closed all my blinds the doors got the volume up really loud and you know did my poor imitation of a theatrical experience at home i used my very old um two disc standard definition dvd on the smallest tv in my household (laughs) i was hoping you were gonna say you watched it on your phone but that's close enough (laughs) (laughs) i I will say it probably wasn't the 4k itunes restoration experience you guys got on this rewatch (laughs) Yeah, I I did watch it on the biggest TV in my house, but I did uh, most of it with a very small person on me, um, my two-week-old, so it wasn't as loud as I would have liked, but other than that, um, I mean, this movie looks so good. So let's let's start with uh, just the beginning. It starts with black and some music. Uh, how does that like set the tone for the the movie for you guys or or Janet specifically you when you mm-hmm. saw the first <laughs> I think it's like two or three minutes mm-hmm. how, how what was your reaction especially since you had the preoccupation that you may be bored by this and <laughs> you sure. didn't see anything for two minutes <laughs> sure I actually really like when movies have an overture like that uh-uh. Um, so <laughs> I didn't mind it at all I did have that moment where when it was still black and I was like do I need to check something? Is this is what it's the sound's going, so it's probably fine. They didn't say overture. It, exactly. There was nothing like I, for example, one of my favorite movies of all time is West Side Story. That movie has a super long overture at the beginning where it's just but it's it's flashing colors on the screen while the music plays. This was just nothing. And it's an exciting song. Uh, well, sure. This is a bit of a, a ambient a dirge, but yeah, just kind of that weird groaning whining sort of noises um so i didn't i wasn't turned off by it or anything but i did have that couple of minutes of 
starting when it was still going after a minute or two, being like, oh, no. But it actually doesn't go on that, that long. And the fact that it breaks with also Sprock Zarathustra. <laughs> I, I think I'm saying never, that right. The, I will the... never. Thus, yeah, I'll, I'll never get it right on the first try. <laughs> I've, I've just been writing it as TSZ in my notes. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing that was really interesting is coming into this, again, no, like, they, oh yeah that's the theme song from 2001 like that's the only I've never seen the movie but every time I've ever heard it it's basically been in the context of like that's the song from this movie so it was interesting when it started playing right off the bat and then it you know they revisit it a couple of times throughout the movie very effectively um, but it was it was actually nice for me to be like oh okay right this is the movie that I'm expecting to watch and the music yeah. I was expecting to hear and I love the title card sequence of like the sun and the planets all, all lined mm-hmm. up in a parallel oh it's just beautiful yeah so then it jumps from space to the dawn of man we get the title card the dawn of man and we see um prehistoric apes and tapirs which are kind of commingling peacefully uh for the most part there's a little bit of territoriality between the the various ape factions i guess one one thing that i wanted to ask you guys what you thought about uh, in this section is there's a leopard attack, which one, it looks like a, the apes, the apes are people in, in ape costumes. Right. They're actually, they were actually <laughs> I had questions mimes. about this also. <laughs> yeah. The apes were mimes uh, that they right. ha- had hired to, you know, portray apes, which I, I think the acting is, is great as the apes, but mm-hmm. the it leopard... was a great casting decision to make them people that for a job don't talk and yeah. only get to use their body for <laughs> expression. Yeah. Yeah, the leopard I'm pretty sure was not a person in a costume. So how No, it is a real leopard. I I, I so I'm going to quickly shout out um there's a YouTube channel called Cinema Tyler who had a eight-part series on the making of 2001 a Space Odyssey. Oh, wow. So a lot of the things I'm throwing out I learned from him. All the thanks. Check out his channel. It's really good. He's got a lot of other series, especially about Kubrick movies and how they were made. Um, but yeah, he's talked about how there, there was leopard attack and they had to do that shot twice because it accidentally attacked a different human <laughs> in the background. It jumped on the wrong character. Whoops. Yes, it jumped and I guess it got confused and ran after one of the apes like in the background with the tapirs. And I can't imagine just being like, all right, let's reset the leopard and just like, just oh, that'd be horrible. Let him loose again. Yeah. Give I... this guy a bag of blood. <laughs> It really, it really stood out though, watching it and not knowing anything about how it was filmed. Like you could tell that the apes were clearly being played by actors in suits, and so when that sequence happens, like it was alarming to me mm-hmm. when the like jumps on his like head and back, and I'm just thinking, oh god, what kind of protective suit is he wearing? What kind of systems were in place? This seems like an OSHA violation. It really, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I didn't see one of those. No, you know, animals were harmed. At the end of the movie, no either, actors so. were no right. actors were harmed either. Exactly, there but was thought, a dead animal shown, though. Oh yeah, yes. yeah. it's a horse. Oh, that's painted. painted. Yeah, that's painted to look like a zebra. I couldn't tell if that was. So I, I also then was wondering, like, and this is part of the problem watching something like this, where I'm trying to watch it and absorb it and the themes and the story. And then at the same time, I'm going like, well, there's a guy in that suit and that zebra's not real. What's that zebra? <laughs> like I could tell it was something painted. Uh, so I tried not to get too far down that uh, rabbit hole and thinking about more about how the movie was being made than 
what it was, especially for my first watch. Um, but I thought the the ape acting was really impressive, um, especially the lead guy, like the main mm-hmm, ape character. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, he is really going for it. Uh, yeah. And so it made sense when I looked it up and saw that it was like a well-known mime, I guess. I was like, okay, yeah, he definitely brought that energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quick question about the apes and their suits. How, what did you guys think of the makeup and costume costume? design that they had to do how do you think that especially the facial part that they had to use how do you think that looked in believability i mean it looked costumes it looked costumey <laughs> it didn't it didn't look like these were real animals but that's okay i mean i in my mind it it was reminiscent of like planet of the apes you know mm-hmm. uh, like original I'm, I'm not good with years but i'm assuming we're around the same time period there so that's the, the only thought i had is i was like okay well it looks kind of planet of the apesy and it's good for what it is but it you know i wouldn't expect it to look like photo real animals <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it, it looks more um animal like than than to, uh than planet of the apes mm-hmm. does uh but like you were saying, you could do, a, I mean, you could remake this movie now and make it photo real the way, you know, they have with The Lion King or Jungle Book. But sure. do we need that? Like, does it need to be any more real than it is? Um, I, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't think it does. The fact that you can tell it's a human in an ape suit almost makes it more believable that this is pre-man instead right. of like chip. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah I, yeah. I thought that whether it was on purpose or not, I thought it worked really well. I had the exact same thought. Like, okay, I can... It helps my brain draw the connection of like this is all a step in the you know evolutionary journey. The fact that they look a little bit man-like, more sort of missing link-ish than just full-blown, you know, ape or anything. Yeah. So speaking of the evolutionary journey, after um, you know the the leopard attack and they fight over the waterhole, we see this big monolith, uh, as it's called. I don't. Do they even use the word monolith in the movie? No. I think. Do they not? I was trying to remember during the end what they. When later on there's like a oh, yeah, info. That, I think it maybe just be in that info dump. Like there's a, a okay. there's a sequence at the end where there's like a bunch of exposition that kind of tells you what's been happening. Um, and mm. I'm pretty sure in that sequence someone says like discovered a monolith. Um, okay. Yeah, but that's the only time. And that's but that's another thing where I also just knew it was a monolith from this movie existing. <laughs> so right, right. Yeah. So it kind of pops up seemingly out of nowhere i love the sound design of this movie so much because yeah. the, the monolith seems to be either emitting or conjuring up this almost like a siren type sound that's luring the apes in and they seem reluctant at first and then they all kind of gather and put their paws in it and it's almost like a, a messianic type symbol like mm-hmm. towards the mm-hmm. end of their interaction with it I love the change of like uh, apprehension and like almost terror to like complete awe and appreciation. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Ebert in his book kind of mentioned. I think his like um, final sentence of his first paragraph was like 2000 is not concerned with thrilling us, but inspiring us. And this is like the first moment of inspiration that we see in the movie. And the score that is used, the Legetti's Requiem, is so perfect in tone for this beautiful but terrifyingly strange moment that is happening in history. Yeah. So after interacting with that, they come across uh, a corpse or like a skeleton of some animal. And I guess ostensibly the, the lead ape uh, grabs 
a bone and starts using it as a tool for the first time and he starts you know beating first that skeleton and then they use it to get food by killing one of the tapers and then using it to fight for territory um so my question for you guys regarding the monolith is obviously the monolith represents um something that is leading to some kind of change in the apes do you think it's giving them the power of intelligence in in other words like it's giving them the knowledge that they can use things as tools or is it giving them violence and like that that is kind of the next step in evolution is is the bone um just the tool and they happen to use it for violence or is it inherent in uh like what that step is that the monolith has given them yes (laughs) say uh yeah basically both um no i i definitely read it or viewed it as you know yes tools and that means advancement and advancement for your society and you can hunt better and you can defend your territory but that then therefore the violence was inevitable as well like it's all part and parcel with one thing you know the step of getting the the bones and realizing that they have uses means they'll be used for both good and bad to feed you and your society and then also to enact violence against your rivals in this case mm-hmm yeah, and I think that's part of um, what Kubrick is kind of going for here is that, or, or one of the many things that I'm guessing he's going for is that, uh, you know, these steps in evolution by necessity will involve violence. And I don't know that he even thinks that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess we'll get to that, and especially towards the end of the movie. Um, but it's he's just kind of like matter of fact about it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that initial sequence, not to backtrack too much, but when he, when the one ape first finds the bone and just starts like wailing on the other bone, like the, the rib cage or whatever the other parts of the animal was like r- really impressive in that it just basically sort of totally went for it. Like the music is swelling and he's just, you know, that's, that's the first moment where I was like, oh, okay, I see like what this is supposed to be it's this sort of evocative like music with the imagery and then it was maybe more representative than literal but then also literal too because then they just start wailing on the other apes <laughs> yeah that scene is thrilling when he gets when when mm-hmm. I, the, they call the main ape moonwalker oh, okay in the script i, I believe so i'm just gonna um but yeah when moonwalker just starts like wailing on the skeleton and realizing like what a tool can be after mm-hmm. seeing the monolith um there it's like it's so rousing to see that happen this like connecting one thing to another and like where this is gonna take man and where it's gonna take these apes um both bad and good it's just like like wow that's like all i can really say about that scene so is is luke skywalker then like a soft <laughs> allusion to this because i feel like I, I feel like the names are too similar and obviously this is um you know, Lucas, we, we know, probably saw this tons yeah. of times yeah. uh, just in general, but it, also because they both made two of, like, the most revered mm-hmm. sci-fi space movies. Yeah. Um, I wonder if the I wonder if there's if it was like a just his his kind of like nod at, at Kubrick. Maybe. I mean, Luke, I think original last name was supposed to be Star Killer, And I think and Lucas decided that was too harsh. 
Wow. <laughs> I don't know if he was then like, oh, let's look at 2001 and see the ape's name. But it is very reminiscent. It would be curious to yeah. ask what? George. And there were other, things. I mean, it was impossible to not to having seen Star Wars 8 million times before seeing this. You know, a lot of the shots when they are in space with the, the ships and sort of the way they sort of glide past the camera and almost like from them. I'm like, okay, well, that's just like the opening shots of, you know, multiple Star Wars movies. Um, so, yeah, whether it was just people making space movies at the same time or super direct influences, there was a lot of similarities there. Yeah. And I'm sure after you've seen this, I'm for, for shots like that, I feel like it just kind of like gets absorbed into you. If you're a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. Uh, the name thing, it it may have just been like subconscious too. like he heard Mm -hmm. moonwalker at some point and, and it kind of came to him and didn't even realize, but I guess that's not important. Um, (laughs) So after uh, the apes, kind of proceed on on their journey the lead ape uh throws a bone into the air and dylan you want to describe kind of what happens <laughs> as he throws the bone into the air yeah well first i want to quickly say um when we see the violence that the um moonwalker inflicts on the other enemies apes um during the watering hole scene just before that that violence is like there's no blood or anything, but that's the sound mixing with that is brutal. Yeah. Like you can feel those hits. It does not let up about how much this one tool is changing the game. And therefore, when um, he throws the bone up, it turns. Um, he throws it up and he throws it counterclockwise, I believe. And the shot cuts as the bone goes out of screen, and then it starts dropping down. And it's now spinning clockwise. Which I find it very interesting that Kubrick decides to switch the spin halfway through. And on the way down, uh, it Kubrick cuts and basically the bone becomes um, the first ship we see in the space sequence. And it is the greatest cut in cinema history. And it makes me mentally restart my brain every time. I love it. It's the best thing. I also agree. It is the greatest cut. It's also, I think, the biggest cut in terms of... Uh, like time being jumped until I think um, Tree of Life probably has it beat now because Tree of Life has like a big bang sequence and there's dinosaurs. That's a whole that, thing. <laughs> yeah, I, it- I kind of, I feel like he might have done that just to earn that, that record distinction. He's like, I, I'm going for it. He's like, I'm going for all this other stuff in this movie. I'm getting that jump cut record too. Was it... I can't remember if that was that in the Ebert essay or was that somewhere else? I did. I read that somewhere too. That like this was the biggest time jump forward, and it was in the, the Ebert history. essay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mark Cousins mentions it in his uh, documentary story of film too about how it's like the most time being traversed in a single cut or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So then we're we're going from the monkeys to space, and we see spacecraft floating around. I actually got I a th- quick thing. Um, to say about this, because I learned something from the Cinema Tyler thing, is that there was supposed to be a narration when the space scene started. Oh. Interesting. I'm glad there is not. Yeah. Would you too. like me to read you the narration real quick? Yeah, yeah let's hear it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, ready? <clears throat> so we cut in, in the amazingest jump cut ever to a space station, and then an English man's voice goes, by the year 2001, overpopulation has replaced the problem of starvation, but this was ominously offset by the absolutely and utter perfection of the weapon. 
Hundreds of giant bombs had been placed in perpetual orbit above the Earth. They were capable of incinerating the Earth's surface from an altitude of 100 miles, and matters were further complicated by the presence of a 27 nations under the nuclear club. There had been no deliberate, accidental use of the weapons since World War II, and some of the people felt secure in this knowledge. But to others, the situation seemed comparable to an airline with a perfect safety record. It showed admirable care and skill, but no one expected it to last forever. Yikes. Imagine that. Yeah, that's a thing. Playing as we see the first ships, which were also supposed to be nuclear warheads. Sure. I mean, it would just be an entirely different movie. It would have been... That. It, it blows my mind how closely we're to ruining this movie. Yeah. yeah. You know what it would have been is... Um, it would have been... 2010 honestly like 2010 yeah. mm-hmm. uh really just strips all the subtlety out from all the mystery out of 2001 and tries to give people doing exposition dumps about it and that yeah. that would have been this so i'm oh, i'm glad they took that out yeah it just would have been a much more sort of conventional stereotypical sci-fi film of that era to say okay right. here's what's happening it's the future overpopulation nuclear the war weapon. like yeah and it's that, that that would have been ruinous i do think uh, if that had been in there it yeah. made me physically uncomfortable when i heard <laughs> they had narration planned for that i was like no yeah. but but what we do get is the uh, the second greatest use of classical soundtrack in a movie after the also sprock Zarathustra <laughs> from the beginning of the movie, which is the Blue Danube waltz. Yeah, I, I loved that whole sequence mm-hmm. and yeah, everything about it. Yeah, there's one bit in that in that sequence that I I'd seen this movie. I think this is the third time I'd seen it, but it's been a little while. Um, and Kubrick's got a sense of humor to him. Like, obviously, Strange Love uh, is a very funny movie. I think. Um, like in their own dark way, something like Barry Lyndon is funny. Lolita has some funny parts to it. Uh, I feel like the Pan Am written on the side of the <laughs> one of the spaceships is a joke, just about commercialism. Sure. And I kind of oh, there's like, so I much plot pr- placement in that first scene. Yeah, there's Howard Johnson and Hilton Hotel product placement right. in the station too. Yeah. And it it reminded me of in um, the movie Ad Astra from last year. Where totally. they get on the moon and there's a subway on the moon just because, of course, there is. Um, so I thought that was just a nice little like he didn't stress he didn't stress it too much, but I got a little right. kick out of that. It was it, that was one of the funny things about watching this movie for the first time now. Um, even though I felt like I knew most everything about it, and I knew it was very influential, but watching it now after having seen. Ad Astra and Interstellar and these other movies that I'm like, oh, these are, I figured they were influenced by something like 2001, but I had no mm-hmm. idea how directly so some much. of the things. Yeah. So in this sequence in particular, Ad Astra was one of the first things I thought of since it's, you know, saw it just a few months ago. Um, yeah. That I, I was amused by that. So then it's not until I, I actually looked at the clock. It's 25 minutes in that we get our <laughs> I did the same actual- thing. Yep. I didn't do. Our first actual dialogue. And mm-hmm. another thing that I think is kind of, it's not like laugh out loud funny, but I find humorous is that the dialogue is so boring. Like, it, at least oh, in the beginning part, it, it's all just, hey, how was your flight? Mm-hmm. It was good. 
you know it's it's the same type of boring small talk that you would have like in real life meanwhile you've been like you're surrounded in you're actually in space and it's Mm -hmm. just the same kind of trivialities that we all have so i think i i thought that was funny um but it also kind of shows how this is just life now like it's none of that is that special to these people anymore they have skype already (laughs) or or zoom i guess yeah, exactly. Another thing that's fun to spot is exactly like that, that they have, you know, like video messaging. And then in the shuttle at the beginning of that sequence, um, you can see like there's chairback TVs on the mm-hmm. little shuttle he's on, which didn't exist in commercial airlines at the time, but would come to be, you know, the standard a few decades later. Um, so just, yeah, stuff like that that seemed like sci-fi futuristic that actually did end up happening. They kind of scientifically nailed a fair bit of this stuff. I mean, they definitely didn't nail that how we would be in space in 2001 or anything. But (laughs) I find one of the funniest things that they half nailed and half didn't nail was the idea that they now have video call. Mm -hmm. But you have to use a phone booth to do it. Like, (laughs) I love how we've now got like telephone calls via like face-to-face interaction but you still got to pay for the telephone booth that's so great so we meet um dr floyd who he's the guy getting onto the spacecraft and he has a discussion with some russians and they're talking about there's a possible epidemic spread Mm -hmm. that they don't specify um and he he basically climbs up and says i can't say anything else about it so while he was kind of playing i said oh no out loud watching it and all of a sudden it's like oh there's an epidemic spread and the guy who's maybe from the government can't talk about it and i was just like oh Mm -hmm. have i made a huge mistake watching this right now is this gonna get like really upsetting and then it didn't but i was concerned for a while this was a secret like epidemic pandemic movie (laughs) it kind of makes me wish we could have gotten a stanley kubrick um, moon epidemic movie (laughs) that could have been an interesting film for him to make i also love how well floyd plays that scene Mm -hmm. generally the dialogue i find is very bland but floyd is almost kind of baiting them to the point in which they say it and he says I can't speak of this anymore. Right. And at that point, like he's subtly convincing them. Yes. The rumor they've heard is true and it's not anything to do with an alien model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, exactly. his whole, de- his whole demeanor changes mm-hmm. uh, in a way that you're like, okay, he, he knows exactly what's going on. Um, in this guy who, who we've been, I mean, at least me, I've been kind of bored by he, you don't find him interesting. And then, he changes his demeanor once they start asking him about the ec- epidemic and you're like, okay, I need to like start paying attention to what this dude has to say mm-hmm. now because mm-hmm. totally. he's the key to something. So we learned that uh, the epidemic is just a hoax that they're using to mislead people because they've found something else that, that turns out to be another monolith, which was buried um, on Clavius, which is, I, I don't think they even say it in the movie what it is, but I, I Googled it and it's uh, a large moon crater. Mm-hmm. So he and um, some other astronauts go over there to check it out. Oh, before that, I just have in my notes, um, there is a zero gravity toilet gag also. <laughs> yep. 
with like very I would long totally and complicated instructions. instructions. Yeah, like the longest mm. instructions in the world. I thought that was funny. And also in that, because I for, I keep always forgetting there's two separate space scenes. There's getting to the station and then getting to the moon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think the second one when they're getting to the moon has my favorite scene or favorite shot in the movie where the woman walks up the um, the wall. Which oh. I mean that that trick has been used since I think Fred Astaire did it right when when he danced up the wall, mm-hmm. but um, in this one again, like um, Kubrick or so not Kubrick, um, Ebert also talks about how slow um, Kubrick makes the action work in this movie and in other stuff like Inception or uh, Fred Astaire, they're like dancing up and they're going crazy and it's like very active. And this one is this woman just like tiptoeing slowly in a circle around. (laughs) Very methodical, very simple, but it's just so like, whoa, like I would never really seen something like that very often, you know? Yeah. It's great. And also the other great thing about this the, that second space scene is when they dock um, and they uh, they dock on the pad and the pad kind of goes down into the station. There is mm-hmm. so many different rooms with such specific detail um, all across that whole station. You can see like through windows and stuff. I I'm just surprised how much they were able to get out of it um, with the special effects they had in their day. It makes me also confused why i always hear people like say when they saw star wars their like mind was blown with the special effects i'm like uh, 2001 was just as good basically like i don't i don't know what star wars really did y'all to make yourself go crazy to be more conventionally entertaining which well star wars yeah. is still very good but that probably helped actually i'm talking myself around that <laughs> So all the uh, the team of astronauts head down to the moon, and you can see that they've kind of dug out uh, part of this crater, and there's lights and all this stuff set up around the monolith. And they walk down, and I like that th- their first reaction is to stand in front of it and take a picture. Yeah, <laughs> they are so cash about the whole ordeal on the on the mm-hmm. moon bus on the way there. They're just yeah. like eating sandwiches, and then they get there and like let's take a group picture. It's just yeah. like. This is an alien thing. Right. It's crazy. And they, no, it's just, they're weird. <laughs> I, that's not how my reaction would be to this whole thing. Yeah, I wouldn't, like, selfie would not be the first thing I think to do. Mm-hmm. So then this react, this interaction with the monolith is a little bit different than, well, it's much different, I think, than the apes. And I don't really know what it means. And I'm curious as to if you guys have takes on this. Because they go to take a picture, and then um, the sun kind of, like, rises up over the moon, and you just hear this high-pitched, awful noise, and they all, like, clutch their ears. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, yeah. we don't really, we don't see them, you know, gain a new tool, or at least, you know, on, on, on the text of the screen the way we do with the apes. So what does that mean to you guys? Like, their differing experience compared to the first time we see the monolith? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will say that it was upsetting um, as soon as that loud noise started. Like, again, sort of started looking around, like, is an alarm going off in my house? Like, it was so loud. And then they are obviously reacting to it on in the movie, so I could tell it was happening there. But I was worried, and maybe it's because I've seen a lot of sort of, like, schlockier action movies, but I was like, like, is this going to, is it harming them? Is it like they're 
you know, head's going to start bursting or something like that. But it just Hmm. cuts away, really. I mean, it doesn't show us what it means or how it affects them, if it does, or what their takeaway is from it. Um, So I was just left with a ton of questions. I personally um, think that when you're talking about how they didn't really gain the intelligence at that point, I kind of think, at least in the apes, it mirrors it where they don't necessarily gain the tool immediately, but there's more or less a cause, which is pre-monolith on both sides and the effect post-monolith on either side where... um, there's like a problem where like the apes are kind of um, unevolved. Monolith's there, and later on they realize, oh, we can use a bone. In this case, it's more like we have space travel and stuff, but where are we really going? What's going to be like helping us uh, operate these things? Monolith, and then we lead. The effect is the Jupiter mission, and specifically the tool HAL mm-hmm. that is able to help and kind of harm. The, that progress in the next stage of humanity. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That, like, in, instead of using the bone as a tool, they're using they're just kind of advancing their own tools. Mm-hmm. It's just different. It's interesting, and I I guess it keeps it from being monotonous that it's depicted in such a different way. Like mm-hmm. with the apes, it's pretty obvious. Like you see the you see the monolith, and then right after that, you see the bone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in this, right after that, you do jump to the jupiter mission so maybe it is um kind of like temporally similar but it's not as in your face i think yeah. like you have to do a little bit more leg work with this one as opposed yeah. to the bone like it's clear that the monolith is tied to the bone mm-hmm. yep so then we jump so forward jupiter. to yeah. yeah the jupiter mission which is 18 months later mm-hmm. and this part of the movie um like when i first saw this i was probably in high school or college and this was you know my favorite segment of the movie and i had gripes about the other stuff being too slow and the stuff after it being too weird but this bit was my favorite bit on first watch um and it's the most it's like by far the most conventional Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like a twilight zone or an x-files episode or i guess (laughs) X-Files feels like this. this. Right. Well, and speaking of like doing time checks, it's an hour in by the time that we actually meet Dave and Hal and sort of everything that I associated with this movie and on all the sort mm-hmm. of um, imagery that I was the most familiar with and the characters interactions. And I did the same thing where I looked at the clock. I'm like, okay, we're, that's, this is actually coming in so much later before we start interacting with what I think of as like the famous parts of the movie so i was surprised how how much he took his time (laughs) getting there and he even takes his time to really get it start like with both of those he has a little classical um uh, song Mm -hmm. that he plays Mm -hmm. he sets it up like um frank is acting all rocky balboa in the space station kind of punching his way through and exercising um and I think at first them eat dinner for like an yeah. extended period of time or like sit and eat a meal and just watch a broadcast. Yeah, it, it more or less sets up like the setting and like the basic actions before the actual story gets started. Mm-hmm. I do have a quick trivia question. I want to see if you guys can answer. Can you guys name one of the three astronauts that are in hibernation? Uh, I don't think John. I... What? John. <laughs> 
So close, Jack. Oh, Jack. There's Doc. Jack is short for John. Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's Doctor Jack Kimball, Doctor Charles Hunter, and Doctor Victor Kaminsky. Uh, Never said a word, but died tragic deaths. Yes, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so they're doing the news. Yes, yeah, and so it, it sort of introduced the characters strangely, where they're they're explaining to us what's happening, but they're like watching themselves do it. So that's another one where I'm kind of trying to keep up and going, okay, so these are these guys. But they're watching this broadcast, and they're they're explaining about the hibernation, and it's a creative way to provide at least the bare minimum of exposition or context. It's a fi- it's a fun exposition dump, right? Exactly, because he's he's obviously reluctant to do too much of that, and I appreciate that. There's really none of those terrible scenes that you have in some movies where characters explain to each other things they would already uh, know. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Dave, our co-pilots who are in the hibernation right now. Like, you know, it, it avoids that trap of having people have con- say things out loud that they would never say out loud to each other. So I, I don't mind that because, you know, we didn't get hardly any explanation. So I was sort of grasping at the little details we were getting. The one thing I did mind about it, though, was how they never predicted that the BBC would update their uh, opening graphics. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did enjoy that too. The very like 60s style BBC mm-hmm. broadcast look. And I can't imagine doing an interview on a seven minute long delay. That would be so boring. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't sure. Are they actively doing the interview or are they rewatching an interview? They're rewatching. They... Okay. Yeah, I couldn't tell if they had done it, like, when in the journey or how long ago. It was just sometime in the past. I hate listening to myself. Um, I, I wouldn't want to watch. I would, no. If I was in space, I wouldn't want to watch a no. video of me being interviewed. Yeah, that, that I know part this information. Would, yeah, that part did ring a little false, which is, okay, well, why? Sure, at least they're not talking to each other, but why are they watching this? But, you know, maybe they're just, like, huge narcissists who just want to see themselves on camera. <laughs> I yeah. think Frank is. Honestly. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd believe it. Frank had some like Mark Ruffalo arrogance in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he definitely came across a lot more like that type mm-hmm. than Dave did. Something I start picking up in this scene is um, specifically the um, the uh, vocabulary Hal uses is much more emotive than the vocabulary of Frank and Dave. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts to imply that um, the next stage in evolution of man is creating a new type of life, an artificial life. And like they question, like, I wonder if Hal can really feel all these things. And I, at least from subtle clues I pick up of how Hal, like he has a chess game with Frank later and... Frank didn't have to lose the game that quickly. He could have actually staved off mate longer than uh, what Hal told him up front. But I think Hal's trying to mess with them to see how much they are compliant. He is much more emotive in his words. And I think Kubrick definitely like projects that this isn't just a computer that's pretending to emote. It's like genuinely emotive, if not more than the humans. It's more human than human maybe sure. yeah i definitely got that same vibe where the it seemed like the point was that they 
imbued him with emotion. And I think they give a reason why they say, like, it'll help with his functionality if he mm-hmm. has this capability also. And so he it definitely does come across like he either has more emotions or is expressing his emotions more than our human characters are because they're very reserved astronaut sort of scientific types. And when they're interacting with Hal, he is actually more expressive. It comes across. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just going back a little bit to the chess thing, I think it was in the, there's a documentary on Kubrick um, that I watched a few years ago. And if I remember right, he used to be like a chess hustler. Like he would, he would play it for money and he used to want to be a pro before he got into like photography and film. I, that, that may not be accurate, but he, he has like personal. They mention it in the YouTube series I was watching. So yeah, he's got personal ties to chess. So like the chess game being there um, and the specific moves that are described are not an accident. Like, that that was very mm-hmm. intentional and even if it's something that people don't pick up you know actively watching it it's just the type of thing that kubrick does in his movies like he puts these little details in that are like almost just for him mm-hmm. um but they add such like it's it's that type of focus or i guess focus if you want to be nice about it or like anal attentiveness if you want to be a little bit more judgmental about it uh that made it sound like uh he was probably horrible to work with but it's why his movies you know the majority of his movies are still you know really highly revered now you know 50 60 years yeah poor shelly duvall poor shelly duvall yeah i was gonna say his reputation uh seems deservedly pretty rough in terms of having to deal with him as a director and him basically feeling like he should just break somebody all the way down and, and that attention to detail um that yeah can make a great art but can whew, make for an mm-hmm. unpleasant person and not one but two people getting attacked by leopards yeah exactly i don't i don't think the health and well-being of his uh, actors and collaborators was really top of mind for stanley right so then um you know we see a little bit of the life on the ship and then Hal is talking about how he's concerned about the mission the mission seems a little bit off to him and it turns out later that he actually knows what is off, but he's kind of prodding Dave and he's like asking him, what do you think about this? And Dave doesn't seem suspicious at all. And it's right at that point when Hal picks up what he says is a fault that will fail in 72 hours. Um, so one question that I have written down is, is Hal right? Is he wrong? Is he mis- or is he lying? So I've read the book and um, one of the things in the book, I'm trying to remember because it's been a long time, but what I remember in the book is Hal at this point is confused because he is, he, he's the only one that really knows everything about the mission. Mm -hmm. And to him, he believes that when the humans learn about it, they will fail the mission and so the most important thing is to kill the humans and pre- pre- to continue the mission on his own because he will be able to complete it. Personally, and I believe this is some Cooper kind of left those details out. I personally mm-hmm. think Hal failed. And that it's more of a too. reaction because they specifically have Hal reading the lips and that's the only point really where Hal 
then goes like I'm going to kill these humans because the mm-hmm. fact that Dave goes out and replace goes out to replace that failed thing. If Hal really wanted to kill them then in the movie, he could have straight up just killed Dave right then and started the whole thing going. But I think because they had to bring it back and test it, Hal started to get nervous that he had failed. And Dave and Frank's nervousness reaction to it is that's what's called the ha- caused Hal to kind of go crazy. So I believe Hal failed. Mm. That was I'm sorry, that was way too long-winded. <laughs> No, that was that was basically my takeaway too. I mean, in both respects, one in that I think it's purposefully not clear. I, I think he did mm-hmm. leave it vague so that you would never really know, and you could ask these questions. But I do think my interpretation basically lines up with that, which is he made a mistake. There, there was an error, and then once he realized that, and that they realized that, he just went into self-preservation mode to you know save himself and the mission. Um, you know, which then leaves the question of, well, how did he make a mistake? They're perfect. They never made a mistake. But, you know, that's part of the mystery. So they actually, um, one of the scientists who, who helped, I think he's the guy who helped create HAL mm-hmm. uh, in 2010 comes up with an explanation. And I don't know how much I like drawing from the sequel to explain it. But I do like, there are things in that sequel that I'm like, oh, well, I hate what that says about kind of the lore of the first movie. But his explanation for this is something that I actually go, okay, yeah, like that actually makes more sense than anything I'd come up with previously. And his theory is that since Hal was programmed to be correct while also being programmed to lie, having to lie like just kind of like blew a circuit and he wasn't able to handle it and it just kind of cascaded into him you know having like just being wrong in other places so he he picks up this so-called fault um that probably is not there it sounds like um but it's all secondary to to his kind of like pathos that this this discordance between having to tell the truth about you know everything except the actual you know purpose of the mission so something i learned interestingly was uh Kubrick actually plays a very small role in the movie. Did, did, did anyone know? I think so. Or I had read somewhere, but it wasn't verified that he does the breathing. Of That's uh, what like the YouTube the video at least said. Yeah, he, he's, he does all the breathing work, which I can mm-hmm. totally see that he wants to make sure all the breathing goes completely by <laughs> how he wants it to be. <laughs> right, that it sounds exactly like he wants it to sound. Mm-hmm. at the right times and at the right moments mm-hmm. so th- that was interesting as we kind of start this like um process of taking the thing out i also yeah. loved how um all the astronauts have their own color yeah. that was kind of cute honestly like dave is red and gary and uh frank's yellow um there's also a blue and green uniform i'm curious which of the uh, the uh hibernated astronauts would have worn those and one technically they didn't show a fifth color maybe one's just good yeah because later on when dave has to like go scrounging for a helmet he ends up with like a either the blue or green helmet it's green green yeah i i I do like that i mean why do spacesuits have to be white why can't they just you know be these bright colors oh that was fun I think it was probably better you don't blend in with the stars. Right, exactly. That's probably very true. <laughs> One thing I really like about this sequence, um, or the, this kind of like set piece when they're on the ship, is whenever it cuts to Hal's point of view, mm-hmm. uh, it 
it it uses like the much wide like wider angle lens right um which i think is in keeping with kind of the shape of the way Hal's you know so-called eye looks Mm -hmm. is that it it looks rounded so his point of view should be wider than the normal lens so I i think that's a really nice touch and i just love the editing between um the lip reading scene where yeah it's it's described later in the movie like i think Hal explicitly explains it to um dave later on when he tells him why he won't let him in but when we see it the first time you don't need that and ebert points that out in his review too that he kubrick shows it and he cuts it together and he trusts his audience to figure it out and you do figure it out you know exactly what's going on just based on how he cuts between uh, them talking, the silence of them talking, but the close-up cutting on Hal's eye. Right, and it, yeah, it's super clear visual storytelling. It was completely obvious to me what was happening there. Um, that whole sequence was very tense because I I knew what they were doing when they went into the, you know, the little capsule, and I thought, okay, mm-hmm. like, I was like, he runs the ship. What are you guys doing? How, where do you think you can go that he can't hear you? And so they turn off all the things, and then it's like, oh, okay, this actually worked. But then. I, you know, you see, I saw the little window and I think I knew in the back of my head, I think I'd seen that clip of the mouse moving before, but immediately I was like, oh no, you've made a huge mistake. Why did and they rotate like, the pod that time though? That's what that was, <laughs> Let's yeah. rotate it towards Hal. Like right. you could have left it in its original position. Yeah. My only thought was, I was like, maybe they, they, for the angle, if they'd had it turned the other way. He could have seen them flipping the switches. I don't know. I had the same thought, though. I'm like, why would you turn it so he can see you? But it lets you have that really impressively cut-together sequence. So I'll allow it. In one of the bonus features, Arthur C. Clarke talks about how he wanted uh, or how Kubrick wanted to have that scene in. And Clarke was really opposed to it. He's like, a machine like learning how to read lips is ridiculous. So it may have been that they just didn't think it. But Clark also in the same bonus feature points out that they've created machines that are able to, at least in part, read lips. So it's just another way in which Kubrick was like just so far ahead of the curve. So then after the the lip reading scene, we get something that I haven't seen in a movie in a long time. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, uh, hatefully at it, but an intermission. Yes. Yeah. Which I think movie, (laughs) I think, I think we need to bring back the intermission. Oh, I'm all for it. I like the intermission. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Hate, Hateful Eight was definitely the last movie I saw that had an intermission, um, at least when I went to see it in the theaters. So that was was kind of fun surprise for me. I didn't know there was going to be an intermission, so it was a good good spot for it to be like, hmm, okay. Um, yeah, I, and then it, when it comes back from the intermission, it does the the blackness with the music again for a minute just to get you back mm-hmm. into <laughs> the mood of the movie. So then um, we're on a spacewalk when we get back and Frank is out there and I love the way the, the module looks like it has arms and it looks like it has yes. mm-hmm. an eye. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it's not just a space module. It looks like a creature. It looks like uh, the, the little dude from Monsters, Inc. The little round dude, okay. with the eye and the little arms. Mike Wazowski. Yes. <laughs> I wonder Vaguely. if that isn't, I wonder if that's intentional. Well, those those Pixar guys, they're real big nerds. It could be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. Well, another movie reference um, that I think has to be intentional uh, that we get, like, that had its origin in this scene is when Frank gets cut and he's 
kind of thrown into space. You just see his body floating in space, getting smaller and smaller in the center of the frame. Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning or the end of the beginning scene of gravity. Right. It's the same. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. There's no image that like freaks me out and makes me more viscerally uncomfortable than that kind of floating in space. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I thought of that right away too. gravity. And then another movie from last year that has a lot of that imagery is high life. Did either of you guys see yes. the Claire Denise High Life? That has some very upsetting, like, bodies floating loose in space imagery that, that brought that to mind, too. That's got all kinds of upsetting imagery. Yes, yeah, that's that's not the least of it, probably. But, um, yeah, that, that sequence with poor Frank. The only question I had about that, and I don't know if they showed it and I missed it or if it's just implied... But so he's ejected from the capsule, obviously, and he's, like, floating in space. But his tube has become, you know, disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, did we see how, like, how Hal did that? Like, how did that get unplugged? You don't see it. You see, I actually rewound it because I was like, did I blink and miss something? You right, see the arms kind of coming towards him like he's mm-hmm. about to get grabbed. And mm-hmm. then it cuts, and then you just see him having been flung. You don't see the flinging right. itself. Yeah. And it's so, got like three awesome smash cuts, like zooming in on the the how part of the um, the pod, and the pod turning around just before it starts like going towards Frank. That's like horror movie stuff right there. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. There's a Although, lot of things in this movie that were horror movie stuff, way more than I was expecting. Like it, it, yeah. a lot of it was shot and edited in ways that I associate with horror movies, and this is yeah. definitely part of that. One thing I do associate with comedy movies is seeing someone like fly by in the very background though. Sure. It's like if it, under like any other tone or like purpose, like I could totally see Keaton or something like in a movie, like he suddenly goes flying and the one like the other character that's somewhere else can just see them on like the screen at the very corner go, woo. It's kind of it's kind of humorous. It was like the it was the edge of comical too, especially because he's like flailing around back there, and you just kind of yeah. see him tumbling through. Yeah. So then, Dave goes and he needs to try to help him. Which yeah. <laughs> good luck. I don't know what he's trying to do at that point. <laughs> how could he possibly have found him? I don't know. It, it, yeah, I have no idea how that was supposed to actually work. Don't doesn't he have a little tracker that he ha- like? There, he has like a little computer thing I think that can show. Frank's location. Maybe. Maybe I'm just too, like, wrapped up in everything I know is fact from the movie Gravity, but I feel like (laughs) it would be so hard to track someone down in space. There's not, like, roadmaps. There's not... You you don't have a north and south. I don't know. So, anyways, uh, Dave goes on the hunt to rescue Frank, and he finds him, technically. Super dead. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he was expecting to accomplish. Right. I almost just have to convince myself that he was hoping to just retrieve the body yeah. for the body. Yeah. yeah. Grabs grabs the body. I, I was otherwise it makes me. To... Otherwise, it makes absolutely no sense that he would go after Frank after they had just talked about how worried they were about Hal failing the mission and leaving that ship completely in Hal's care. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then on his way back in, we get the famous scene of Dave telling Hal to open the pod bay doors. And Hal says, nah. Yeah. <laughs> that, not, yeah, not that's happening. what Hal said. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear someone like, 
on like the script notes at the beginning of the day about what Douglas Rain should say yeah. from Hal. Right. Just be like, Open the pod nah, Dave. Nah. <laughs> nah. Sorry, bro. Nah. So he basically says this conversation can serve no purpose any longer. He says, bye, Felicia. Yeah. And Dave has to figure out how to get in. He basically decides to go like through the backdoor emergency entrance. Yeah, exit, the airlock. Right? Yeah. Which so I'm, sh- I'm shocked Hal didn't think of that earlier. That's what I was that's what I was gonna say. How how did how did Dave think of that, but right. Hal didn't? Did leaves. Hal just not think that Hal just didn't think that Dave had it in him? Yeah, because or... well, he's very dismissive. He's like, good luck, you know, good luck doing that without your helmet or, you know, whichever. <laughs> and sure, I mean, that would definitely be tough. But mm, like, yeah. the, it's like you're either for sure going to die or you're going to take a chance on getting in. Hal doesn't think he's going to take the chance. Right. Mm. Especially because the, the pod can back up so well into that little airlock. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. I also think um, it's this interaction between Hal where I noticed that there's not any good human performances in this movie, except for Kier Dulay. I think he actually does a very good job in this movie, him trying to fight verbally with Hal, his physical, like... He, like, braces so hard, ready for that impact, and how he was able to pull up... Like, that has to be Kier Dulay pulling off that stunt and him going through the final scene... Uh, with how I, I I really think he actually does a very good job in this movie. And when most of the people say like the biggest problem with 2001 is the human stuff, I think he's an exception to that. No, I haven't. I have in my notes how good he is. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. His, his job is sort of to be a blank slate almost, so that we are like projecting all of the emotion of of these interactions onto Hal, which is kind of the irony or the paradox of like what this segment is about. Um, and just in his facial expressions and his dialogue delivery, uh, I think Cure Delay does such such a great job. But it's the type of performance that's really kind of underrated because it's by definition not showy. It's like mm-hmm. uh, you need you need someone in basketball. You need somebody who's going to get an assist. Like without them, you're not going to. Mm-hmm. You're not going to score as often. And you need you know Cure, Cure gives that type of uh, performance in this movie. So I think he's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I was really impressed, I think, because the reputation is that it doesn't have any good performances or that the acting is bad or at least just, you know, not good. Um, so I was impressed because I went in thinking, oh, right, these are like a bunch of bad actors. And I was like, he's really – I thought he was really good to mm-hmm. accomplish exactly, like you said, what he's setting out to accomplish, which isn't some big bravado, you know, charismatic <laughs> marching back and forth across the screen, but really conveying, you know, how someone would react dealing with this insane set of circumstances and trying to have this battle of wits with this artificial intelligence. Mm. And in the next scene, after Dave actually gets inside, his kind of goal at that point is to disassemble Hal. Or, I mean, if you want to be more metaphorical about it, he's he's brainwashing and then murdering Hal. And yeah. the things that Hal says to him, he's at first apologetic, and then he says, "Stop, Dave, I'm afraid." And that's like it's kind of heartbreaking in in its own way. Right. It's sad right. and scary all at once. Yeah. Well, and it gets back to the conversation of how authentic his emotions are. Like, how is he? Is mm-hmm. he 
putting this out there because he know that it knows that it's manipulative. Um, it's sort of like you guys, you both watch The Good Place, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't so, finish it yet. Okay, but early on, they establish early on when um, they need to reset Janet. She has that like built-in mm-hmm. response that's like, "No, my children, no, oh, don't, don't kill do me. it." Yeah, exactly. And then she's like, "Oh no, I don't actually mean it. That's just a defense mechanism." And so I don't know how much. You know, I think one of the interesting questions about that sequence is how much of it is manipulation and him thinking, mm-hmm. okay, I'll, I'll say these things, I'll say I'm scared, I'll, I'll do this, versus, you know, he seems to have some genuine, he's programmed to have genuine emotions. He probably is actually scared, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, even more terrifying to contemplate. Something interesting that I learned from also that YouTube series was um, uh, they showed an interview of Kier Delay, um discussing... Um, because it's similar to how, like, they had to do Darth Vader in Star Wars. Like, the voice actor who did Darth Vader wasn't on set. And so, um, Hal, Kier Delay described him as sounding like Michael Caine. So, oh. if you could just imagine, like, Dave. Interesting. <laughs> That'd be a very different I'm vibe. I'm afraid, yeah. Dave. <laughs> Glad they didn't do that. The, yeah. Who was the actor that they'd initially... Um, I don't know if they had actually hired. It was uh, Marty Balsam. I don't know if they hired him oh, or they yeah. were were planning on using him originally. But I th- I think they nailed it with uh, the mm-hmm. the voice acting of Douglas Rain. He just does such a terrific job. Like, and the, my mind is going is another line that just like it gives me chills. It's yeah. so sad. Yeah. Uh, it that whole like I don't know three minute scene of how kind of pleading for his existence mm-hmm. if you stretch that out into a feature-length movie that's what ex machina is pretty sure. much yeah and that's it's kind of true that's why, and that's why i love that movie so much is because it it gets into just this question of ai like how much of this is real mm-hmm. and, and how much does an ai deserve to live uh, you know as right. much as a human um something else with that scene um just the way he turns Hal off, where he almost has to stick this screwdriver into this hole and twist it, and there's a physical thing that has to get pushed out, like a, like an almost memory card mm-hmm. getting pushed yeah. out. It feels very graphic, mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like a violent kill that's going on. There's no blood, because it's a machine, but, like, there, there's this, like... It's not just, like, him flipping a switch. It right. genuinely feels like a violent kill that he has to do to completely deprogram Hal. It makes the scene even harder. It's it's a tough scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he does it with, uh, and it's part of Cure Delay's, um, like just another piece of his kind of subtle acting is he does it like with surgical precision. He, he He's not mm-hmm. stabbing it. He's not flailing. He's not screaming at Hal. He's just, mm-hmm. I have to turn some knobs and that's what I'm going to do. And he's just trying to, I presumably he's just trying to ignore everything that Hal's saying to him because he knows that it's not going to help him at all to not do this. I love how um, towards the end when Hal starts going a little bit more, Dave almost becomes kind and reassuring almost. I think once like Hal's main memory thing is deactivated mm-hmm. and Hal comes to like his base state where he like asks to sing a song, like Dave's like, mm-hmm. yes, Hal, please sing me a song. Like God. that's... That feels like euthanization then at that point. Like, he's just, like, trying to 
keep Hal calm and almost like putting him soothe. to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. It is. And it's at the it's at the point where the howl that Dave knew is gone. Like he's he's pulled mm-hmm. enough of those things where he's kind of reset and at that point right. um the the creature or the being that he kind of wants to get rid of is already out of the picture. So mm-hmm. then he's able to like let himself be a little bit more personable uh, with him. Mm-hmm. What is, or what was hell, I guess. Right. Yeah, he's not yeah. much of a threat at that point. Do you guys know what the Daisy thing was? Like, why they used that song? For years, for years, I had convinced myself that Daisy, they picked Daisy for, like, a theoretical reason about, I mean, it's basically a song about someone asking a question and waiting for an answer. Mm-hmm. And that feels like most of this movie is humanity, like, asking a question of, like, why is this monolith here? What is the next step in waiting for an answer? Turns out Arthur C. Clarke went to the first computer song sung by a computer, and it sang Daisy, and that stuck with Arthur C. Clarke, so he was just like, I'll use Daisy for this scene. And all my all my theories went out of the window your at that point. Your, your theory's better. It's much more interesting than... Right, that uh, it's just like a meta you, thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but yeah, that hurt when I learned about that. I was so bummed, but it's. I think it's pretty interesting that, because... Arthur C. Clarke was definitely someone that was, like, interested in, like, modern and, like, um, future-growing science and the fact that I'm pretty sure it said that he had gone to, like, one of these first, like, um, computer performances and one of them was, like, the first song sung by a computer and it sang Daisy and that just stuck with him and that's why he used it, but... Yeah, I think it was by Bell, like, the company Bell was the one who, Mm. who developed that. But yeah, it's just like a casual reference that doesn't really mean anything in a more metaphysical way. It's just, yeah, some other computer did it, so we're going to do it. Yeah, but there's something also about it being like a children's song, you know, this sort of yeah. very basic mm-hmm. sing-songy thing that adds to the creepiness, I think, especially when it's getting all slowed down and it's, yeah, it's extra creepy. So um, after Hal's disassembled, um, Dave gets you know, over to Jupiter and he gets to the monolith. So as that section closes out, there's one thing that I am curious as to your guys' thoughts on. So, you know, in um, uh, the first Indiana Jones movie, how Indiana Jones does all these things and he fights like the Nazis and blah, blah, blah. And he gets there and they open the Ark and well, spoilers for this movie, but it, <laughs> the Ark kills all the Nazis who were looking at it. And it turns out that Indiana Jones didn't actually really do much. Like right. his his being there or not being there didn't really affect the mm-hmm. kind of overall circumstance of what was going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Does how being there really affect anything other than there would have been four more astronauts still there? Like wouldn't they have gotten to the the monolith anyway and we would have just had five star children? I think... I'd, I. The way I see it is they had to make this artificial intelligence to make this ship survive because it's such a long mission. It's such a complex mission. Like, in my opinion, from what I understand, uh, my takeaway is that, like, this mission couldn't have happened without Hal controlling so much of it because there was so much there that needed to be done. Yeah, I don't mean, I don't mean um, like, any artificial intelligence. I mean, Hal's... Uh like the the misadventures that we have yeah the, oh. all, the, 
all the hijinks that go on in that section. Gotcha. Like, right. other than it getting rid of four other astronauts, does does Dave's trajectory really change? Or not really, right? Well, no, it's, it's a good question because you're right. I didn't think of it when I was watching it, but everything Hal does is to say, well, I have to survive because the mission has to survive and that's the important thing. So he does what he does, but Dave fights back and wins and destroys him anyway, which the wor- the worst the whole thing he did was he took them out because he saw they were planning to maybe unplug him basically. And mm-hmm. that's ultimately what happens anyway and then <laughs> Dave still ends up at Jupiter. So um yeah, I think that's probably true. I think if they had just I mean, you know, who knows I guess, but if they had just unplugged him, wouldn't they have just kept going anyway I, maybe he was worried that mm-hmm. they would get scared and turn around or something i don't know mm. i don't question. know what it means like it's yeah. it's ever since somebody pointed that out to me about indiana jones it's like a thing that i look for in movies yeah. now just like did, did any of this matter like yeah you you find that a lot I, I did the exact same thing so i read that about indiana jones a while ago and realized oh yep that's true he's basically just chasing them and then it, it ends how it ends and i do think think you find that convention in mm. a lot of action movies especially where the yeah. hero is just chasing 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 and then in the end the bad guy you know gets blown up by his own bad idea and <laughs> the hero is mm-hmm. just there to witness it yeah and it's not a criticism like it's not something no, that no, no, no. bothers it's, me it's, a convention, it's just something yeah. I, yeah it's just something i've noticed like my my brother really doesn't like um the last jedi for kind of a similar reason like you sort of start where you you sort of end where you started and i'm like i don't care though the two hours in the middle were really fun Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the last section, we get uh, one more title card, and that is Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. And mm-hmm. um, we run up against the monolith, and it is, I have, that it's the last step of some cosmic treasure hunt, basically. Mm-hmm. They're just following <laughs> these m- different monoliths to the Stargate yeah. sequence. Is the monolith, like, I couldn't, I mean, it's it's floating, right? So it's sort of orbiting around it's like marking i guess where yeah it's, he needs it's, to it's go. orbiting jupiter yeah orbiting jupiter and sort of like welcoming welcoming him into the stargate mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. yeah so the monolith is the stargate okay so he just flies into it i'm not good with space time yeah. continuum you see stuff. that more in 2010 actually because they go back mm, of course they do it's dumb <laughs> There's a lot in 2010 that I just don't like what they do with the it's dark. So there, there are multiple, there are multiple monoliths. Uh, it's like yeah. if you liked four monoliths, what about four thousand oh, monoliths? That's so, that's that movie. Yeah, but yeah, this was the sequence where when he goes in to the Stargate and then starts traveling, uh, where I went like, oh, okay, so that this is what Interstellar is. Like, this is where this yeah. like vision first come, came from, I guess. Of And I, I'm sure it's based on maybe some theoretical of like, if you could travel into a wormhole, what would it look like? Um, but it that really jumped out at me right away. And I also really liked, um, I thought it was very effective, the cuts back to Dave and like his reaction, where he's sort of awestruck and then making that, yeah, absolutely like terrifying face. <laughs> Um, it was really unsettling. It yeah. looks sort of like his his face, like if you smush your face up against mm-hmm. glass. Yeah. Only there wasn't glass there. <laughs> right. Just exactly. Up against something. Just smushed. Yeah. I'm still yeah. shocked they were able to make that scene. I don't. 
in in the video I watched, um, they explained the special effects they did to make that happen. I I still don't understand what the heck happened. That like it that stuff is mind blowing that they were able to make it look like that in 1968. It's incredible. It's so funny that this movie is all about space and there's a whole scene on the moon mm-hmm. and it was a year before Apollo 11. Mm-hmm. Like it was a year mm-hmm. before we even walked on the moon. Well, that's why there's yeah. all those conspiracy theories. Yeah, right, I, I will. Right. I will say, I, I as much as I was trying to watch the movie and take it extremely seriously, uh, I was you're, watching you're trying it, to find clues. I was watching it with my husband. And it was just a series of like, wow, this looks so realistic. And well, I mean, obviously, I mean, Kubrick, you know, mm-hmm. that's why they hired him. And it, it was impossible not to think of the goofy um, oh. conspiracy theories, just because that's so like steeped in awful internet culture to be like, oh yeah, yeah. well, this is why they hired him, you know. Have you guys seen Room 237 by any chance? I, I haven't. haven't, but I really want to. It came out before I had seen The Shining, so I, I like missed it when it came out because I was like, I'm not going to bother. But now that I've seen The Shining a couple of times and some more Kubrick in general, I really want to go watch it. It looks batshit, basically. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. You're not going to learn like no. stuff, but it's interesting watching how... like in-depth people have gone they need to make one of those for this movie though because i'm sure people have have also like just dissected this movie you know ad nauseum in really just bizarre ways and especially with Ah. regards to uh the apollo 11 mission uh what were were you gonna say dylan um one thing it's talking about um like obsessive cultures around this movie um do, do, do you guys know what the tagline of this movie is now it was it was this was tagged after the movie came out because of all the psychedelic hippies that liked it so much mm. it they the tagline for the movie is the ultimate trip oh i i have seen that yeah and i don't know it's so annoyed to me that this movie gets wrapped up in psychedelic drug culture cuz yeah. this is honestly one of like the most sobering movies to a point almost i mean it's very exceptionalized but like well it's so i thought about that while i was watching it because i i was familiar with that part of its reputation and so when it got to that end i was like oh i see like this is the trippy part and oh yeah i guess if someone was tripping like this would totally blow their mind but like you wouldn't they have just like gotten bored and wandered off before like it's it's (laughs) the final 15 minutes of the movie (laughs) i can't imagine someone thinking yeah or beyond terrified at how, or, or or that exactly, or just have totally freaked out. But yeah, it's it's really that that sequence sure has that quality to it. But I can't imagine watching this very sort of like purposeful, like restrained, mostly quiet movie for two plus hours to be like, yeah. all right, now here's the good stuff. So I, I do have a uh, quote. This is from uh, Bilga Abiri, uh, who's a writer for, or was a writer, I think. I don't know if he, did the village voice collapse? I think the village it, voice might've gone under. It did. I think maybe he's a vulture now, but I am not okay. fact checking that. But yes, yeah, so this was this, Yeah, this this was of the village voice. Um, and he says, quote, village voice is Andrew Saris, uh, never a big fan of Kubrick's, initially hated the film. To him, it was Antoni Ennui, which is like Antonioni slash Ennui, uh, in, dis- okay. in disguise. And then parenthetically, <laughs> Abiri says, to his credit, Cirrus later revisited 2001, this time making sure to get stoned beforehand and decided it was an important and personal <laughs> film from a major artist. 
Sure, sure. So it wasn't it wasn't just like the potheads. It was also uh, you know prominent film critics who didn't like it and it's then ex- sure. expand your took, mind. Took, man. Some, <laughs> took some drugs and they're like, oh wait, this is actually really really good. <laughs> so we, anyway, after, yeah, after the Stargate bit, there's also I like one of the things that I'd forgotten about uh, that I love so much is just the landscapes that are like mm-hmm. different colored yeah. landscapes. It's just such gorgeous photography. I love it. It's and great. Dave kind of lands, I guess. In sure. A room. Yeah. He this is where it starts for a, yeah, for a movie that had shown in like such great detail. Like this is how exactly the ships dock with one another. And this is exactly how the technology works. Things start. He just starts cutting out the, <laughs> the, the, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Now he's in a house. You're like, Okay, fine. <laughs> Again, it was making me wonder, like, did I miss something? No, no. He's just now cutting to the chase. We're in the home stretch, and yeah, you blink, and he's in a room, and then watching himself age alone. I think in a time house? is distorting. Yes, time time has lost all sense of of like up and down, and yeah, I, that was interesting. And as it starts, it's really it's scary. Oh yeah. Oh, it's like speaking of like the horror movie, he's like looking around a corner and there's like a the back of somebody's head and you don't know who it is and then it's him and then it just yeah, very unnerving. I think that is not just time too, but I think that that place doesn't literally exist. That was kind of my reading sure. of it is Yeah. Like hmm. there there's no reason for this kind of Victorian looking place to exist at the far right. ends of space. With like but classical statuary, just, yeah. Right. It felt like to me, and sort of like I, I kind of already was looking for reasons to to back that theory up. But the way um, Dave like walks around and is looking at things, it feels like, or it felt like to me, um, that he was looking at something that he'd seen before, and this is like his memory or something in his subconscious being projected that he's you know not literally in, but he's more it's more like a, a figurative or metaphorical space that he's he's sitting mm-hmm. in which maybe that's why Cirrus liked it better the second time <laughs> yeah like it's a sort of like a, a mind palace kind of thing yeah or it's right. a room created of his memories and it, whatever or whoever put him there and created this like this is just a way for him to make sense of his circumstances mm-hmm. and then he eats and eats some more. And gets, gets into a bed. Bit older. <laughs> gets into bed. He points. So I saw something online that um, the pointing is supposed to be a visual illusion to um, the the Michelangelo picture of oh the, wow the, the Sistine Chapel. Sure, I think it's the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm the not creation of life. That. Yes. The yeah, that makes sense. So he's reaching out and then in the painting the right he's reaching out he's on the left on the painting the right side is god um so god is the monolith or the monolith is god or godlike mm-hmm. i guess using that kind of visual mm-hmm. interpretation mm-hmm. and then dave becomes what is referred to as the star child mm-hmm. and now Jana, i am so curious i mean how <laughs> I knew the star child was coming. I knew it ended with okay. a shot of like a floating baby in space. So it was more of a like, how is it gonna get there? Like, how, you know, and I, I didn't know though that it was sort of 
born of him, re- him reincarnated, like gotcha. Yeah, but I had I had a, for better or worse definitely seen that image and the concept of the Star Child and everything for as long as I can remember. Okay. I think if I was watching it at like the premiere or something, that would have been the moment where my mind would have broke. Oh, sure. <laughs> Just like, what the heck is this? <laughs> oh yeah, I can't. I can't imagine seeing it totally cold. Um, I did enjoy in uh, Ebert's essay. He talks about seeing it. You know, um, you know, the first time he saw it, and, and anecdotes from the premiere and things like that. And talks about is it. Rock Hudson, he says. Who yeah. Goes, Someone tell me what this means and or what this is about and like stalks out before it even gets to that point. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine being in that room, watching it, not knowing what it's going to be and getting to that ending and just being like, huh, all right. So there's there's one thing in this movie. There's a lot of movies that I, I really love that uh, are similar to this and a lot of them are probably inspired by this where you don't get literal answers and you need to kind of bring your own interpretation and you know unhash your own metaphors from it and david lynch does this in like almost all of his movies so mohan drive i think a lot of people have different interpretations of and i have my own kind of like what makes sense to me emotionally um Mm -hmm. my own rating of that movie and even if i can't suss out exactly like what this represents and what does this specific thing mean what does the blue box mean i at least know how i feel about everything with mm-hmm. mahon drive and the one thing that keeps me back from like this being you know a number one movie for me is the star child not only do i not know what it means but i don't even know how it makes me feel like i don't even know if it's supposed to be like is it good or is it bad right oh to me it's I have a very, like, defined emotional reaction to the Star Child. It's the thing that I have the most defined reaction to in the whole movie, which is the same way I felt about Moonwalker hitting the, the bones together, which was just, like, a rousing, cheering feeling. This is man taking its next step out of flesh, out of almost weaponry, and into, like, consciousness. And that is it. And it's, I love that Dave comes back to Earth. And now the sky is clear of all, like, the clutter and the spaceships. And originally, he was Dave was actually supposed to mind-blow all the nuclear weapons up. But mm-hmm. Kubrick thought it would be too close to Dr. Strangelove ending. I think, at least in Kubrick's mind, this is seen as a positive moment of humanity truly reaching, like, the highest step that the alien monolith people were hoping for consciousness to get to. And I, I have a very positive, thrilling, emotional reaction to it, honestly. Yeah, and the music certainly backs that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a couple articles that I found, because I found two people who had like very contrasting um, opinions on it. So more in line with you, this is uh, Josh Spiegel from Movie Mezzanine, who said, um, he says, the very fact that it's Dave who moves onward into his new state of being is proof enough of what Kubrick sees as the possible triumph of mankind. So he seems to think it's triumphant. Um, but this is from Pauline Kael. She she says, uh, the hero is reborn. Oh, she as hated an angelic- the movie. <laughs> she says, the hero is reborn as an angelic baby. It says that man is just a tiny nothing on the stairway to paradise. Something better, i.e. non-human is coming, and it's all out of your hands anyway. Like, that sounds pretty bleak. Right. And I'm not sure which of those. I was yeah. more aligned with you, Nick, in that I, part of, I, I 
loved the movie, um, but I I didn't really have a ton of emotional reaction to the ending. I think my biggest emotional investment was in the stuff with Hal and like his mm. deprogramming and being turned off. I did. I felt some connection there, but everything else and especially the end sequence, I definitely admired more than I felt connected to it. And that's not, you know, an indictment of it at all. I think it was just, it's a phenomenally accomplished movie and it deserves all the praise it gets. But I, yeah, I, at the end was just like, okay, wow, cool. And, but I didn't have that, you know, I wish I could have had that, you know, intense emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I felt okay. it a little bit more in like my head than in my heart mm-hmm. to be yeah. cheesy about it. Like, I, I appreciate it for what it's doing, and it certainly made me think. I mean, this is the th- third or fourth time I've seen it, and I've spent more time thinking about that than probably any other movie that I watched the last few weeks, and most of them I saw for the first time. So, I mean, it's it's an achievement. Sure. And to the movie's credit, I think, um, you know, I, I did. it would be unfair to say that I didn't have any emotional reaction. I had an emotional reaction at the end, but it was more in sort of a meta level of like, wow, like look what a movie can do. And that to me, I always have a very strong mm-hmm. emotional reaction to when I'm just like, movies are so cool. <laughs> like the fact that this <laughs> yes. is in someone's head and he made this movie and he pulled it off. Like I was so impressed that I did. I felt like a very satisfied feeling at the end out of just like what an accomplishment it was. Um, but that's just because I when I do have more genuine emotional reactions to movies, it's usually character based. And, you know, this was definitely about the, the journey of humanity more than anything personal to Dave mm-hmm. and, and his maybe mm-hmm. sad story. <laughs> well, um, before we get to our final thoughts and like opinions and stuff, mm-hmm. I want to quickly um, go over with you guys, the sequel books that Clark wrote and where the story kind of goes. I'm going to, I'm, I've tried to get the summaries as close to com- like tight as possible. Um, Nick, you already know what 2010 is about. The general idea is Floyd is back and the U S and Soviets go together to find the Dave, uh, Jupiter missions, uh, old ship. Um, in the book, I don't believe it's in the movie. There's a Chinese spacecraft that also takes off for Europa. Um, and they've believed that the a- and the and the aliens have believed that um, on Europa there is potentially evolutionary life, and Dave shows up and tells Floyd that they must leave Jupiter within like two days or something. At which point the scientists find a dark spot on Jupiter that is growing, and when they increase magnification, it is thousands of multiplying monoliths overtaking Jupiter. Uh, the the nuclear fusion of the monoliths caused Jupiter to explode and become a small star, inadvertently destroying Hal, who they had uh, reawakened when they had gotten to the Jupiter mission. And Who's Hal was now good. It. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at that point, that's so funny. Is Hal in 2010 is like, I understand that I must die for the mission. And this star that has been reborn out of Jupiter, uh, Jupiter is now called Lucifer. Uh, and this is not I, also, I believe, in the movie, but the, ep- the epilogue of the book says that the aliens take Hal's destroyed consciousness to be Dave's new friend. Okay. Nick's face <laughs> says more than... <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay. Now 2061. 
Floyd is now 103 and back in action. South Africa has had a major revolution, and all the white people have abandoned the country, leaving the black people to reform the economy, and they do so easily using the diamond mines they have. And Floyd's grandson is on a ship that gets hijacked around Jupiter, and they crash land into Europa, and they learn that the crash land happened because... It turns out there is a giant diamond that was an exploded core of Jupiter on this moon of Europa. And if humanity learned about these diamonds, the diamond market would collapse, and so would South Africa's economy. <laughs> Did Ar- So Arthur C. Clarke wrote these? He wrote all of this. Cool. This was all in Arthur C. Clarke's mind the all whole right. time. All right. At which point, Floyd goes to Europa... And he sees a massive monolith on Europa now. And inside the monolith, you'll never guess. This is the best thing in the whole... Is Hal and Dave have now been combined into a consciousness called Halman. Sure. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Not (laughs) Bohal? Yeah, not Bohal. Um, and Floyd's consciousness as split as well. And Halman informs Floyd that in the future, the Europans will weigh which species has more promise, the Europans that are currently evolving or humanity. And finally, in 3001, we get sort of the answer to that, where basically what they're called is the firstborn, which are described as coming out of the primordial soup of the universe that created the monoliths. Um... They have basically decided that the Europans are what's best. At which point, um, some astronauts on a comet find Frank Poole's dead, freeze-dried body, thaw it out, and recreate Frank back to life. No joke. I mean, they talk about the Star Wars universe feeling small. There's four characters in this entire series that takes place over a thousand years. That's the one thing that I had heard was going to happen because, like, when Frank died in the movie, and I was like, oh, wow, oh, Frank, I guess that's that. And, like, my husband made the comment. He's like, yeah, don't worry. They find him one day in the future in the sequel. So yes. Like, no, they don't. And he's like, yeah, yes. And they, they do. thong out. They take him back to Earth, and we now have diamond super elevators to get across the solar system, Fun. and genetically engineered dinosaur servants. Oh, cool! I'm not even making that See, up. And they didn't make any of these movies. They they made 2010 no. and then tapped out. Oh, okay. Bummer. And Frank goes to meet Halman. And he asks Halman to implant a computer slash biological virus into the monoliths, blowing them all up to con- to stop the super monolith that c- controls all the monoliths from destroying humanity. And thus humanity is at least saved for another thousand years. And there was no sequel, ah, shockingly. The end. <laughs> um, at this point... I've always wondered how much 2001 was Arthur C. Clarke and how much 2001 was Stanley Kubrick. And I have to believe all the genius in 2001 <laughs> has to be Kubrick at this point, right? Yeah. Right? Yes. That is ridiculous. Yeah. There is genetically engineered dinosaurs 
giant diamonds that control the South African economy and Halman. Yeah, at the very least, Kubrick was was acting as you know the the source of all restraint that was shown um, in the movie. To be sure, it sounds like Clark did sort of accidentally invent Futurama, though. Yeah, I was gonna say a lot of that does seem like straight out of a Futurama plot. Oh, I just yeah, it's so bad. Even 2010, I, I really just did not enjoy. Like it, I think I said to you that um, it felt like somebody made a sequel to 2001, but they didn't actually see it. They just read the plot summary and they're like, "Oh yeah, I know, I know what to do with this." Because the yeah, here's just what the tone, next. The, yeah, the tone of it is just like it's nothing like the original movie. Well, and I just, I have not seen it. I'm not familiar, but I pulled up even just the Wikipedia page and I'm like, oh, and there's also like actors you've heard of in it. Like much more, it just sounds like a much more conventional, like schlocky 80s sci-fi movie. Helen Mirren is in it. Yeah. And she's a Soviet, right? She's a Soviet, yeah. Hmm. Great. And John Lithgow's in it. Yeah, I saw John Lithgow and yeah, Roy Scheider. Bob Balaban. What what an all-star cast. Yep. Oh it's my god! Yeah. So using the um, the Roger, we'll do two things. First, um, Roger Ebert has this is a great movie. Do you guys consider this a great movie? Like, would you like capital G Roger Ebert great movie? Yes, personally, yes. I think so too. Um, I think like it's not going to be in my top. Five or ten, maybe, of my personal movies, but I, I think it's fairly. Well, that's a short list. I, just, I know, uh, but I, I think it's fairly undeniably a a great movie. Yes. And you, Nick? Me too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, without a doubt. I'm also curious before we do our thumbs up, thumbs down, mm-hmm. and rating. Um, where does this rank in Kubrick's filmography for you guys? Mm. His filmography is so tough for me to parse out. Like it's it's one of those things where yeah. his movies, some of his movies are so different that it's just based on mood in a lot of ways. Um, I do have such a special place for The Shining. Yeah, in my heart mm-hmm. though. Yeah, I do too. And I, I haven't seen all of his movies. I've seen maybe two thirds or so ish of his movies. Um, you know, so this it's up there, but yeah, for me, The Shining is still my number one. Wow, I don't think Shining gets in my top five. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> but I love The Shining. Like, it's nothing against The Shining, but oh. and and I still need to revisit Doctor Strange Love because I just had such an aggressively mm-hmm. bad reaction to it the first time I saw it. Because uh, I thought it was too scary, so I, I want to revisit it's terrifying. it. It's, it is like it's, and so I could I didn't get to appreciate the the humor in it because I just found the entire concept so blah, uh-huh. you know alarming. I, so I personally like Barry Lyndon and Passive Glory the most, except for two thousand one. Two thousand one would be my one, and then probably okay. Passive Glory, Barry Lyndon. I think I would probably. And then the have it as shining Barry Lyndon and that this, but it's it's. I mean, I might be splitting hairs. Like if you ask me on another day, I might have this as number one, number two. I don't know. Yeah, Barry Lyndon's my next highest priority to watch that I haven't seen. I I, am, I have the Criterion Blu-ray on my on my shelf. It's there, waiting to be watched. I just again, it's another that movie is 
like fully it's, three hours long, I think. So it's, it's uh, very, very long. Yeah. But well, it's so, I'm glad we're a pro Barry Lyndon podcast. I'm super happy about that. I, yeah, think it, I think it kind of flies by though. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard nothing but amazing things. I will say, speaking of length, so when I first looked up, when I was trying to schedule when I was going to watch 2001, I looked it up and the internet said running time two hours and 45 minutes. And I was like, oh God, three hours, that's so long. And so then I go to iTunes and iTunes said two hours and 25 minutes. And I was like, oh God, are there different versions? Is there the wrong one? Like, am I going to watch the right thing? And so I did some digging and then Ebert actually talks about it in his essay that only that first screening was the full length uh, after the initial reactions, Kubrick immediately cut 20 minutes out or like 19 minutes out of the movie. So I would be curious to know what what on earth was it just like more shots of the spaceships flying by? <laughs> like, you know, how, how much more there was that he trimmed. Um, but uh, yeah, I I think it was good at the length that it was. <laughs> It's just 20 minutes of the aliens coming out and talking to Dave at the end. They're like, so here's, here's what we did. Yeah, here's, here's what the monolith does and how it works. Let's, let's answer all your questions. Stanley Kubrick starts, like, pushing Arthur C. Clarke away. Yeah, exactly. Just, no. just dragging no. him by his jacket. <laughs> the monolith has a panel on the back. If you open it up, it explains everything. Exactly. Well, okay, something that um, Arthur C. Clarke said in an interview is they originally had the monolith be like a TV screen, and it was going to show the apes what to do to, like, use tools. And I'm just like, no. I'm now questioning everything positive I've ever thought about Arthur C. Clarke. I have concerns. Do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Um, I guess in a a book that makes more sense. uh uh, Yeah. He's not a filmmaker. Yeah. Also, they thought that the, originally the monolith was going to be like a tetrahedron pyramid, mm. which that would have lost me, honestly, yeah. instead of like this tall, like it's, slender object. It's one of those things where the monolith, I think, is so iconic that I just can't even imagine it yeah. being something mm-hmm. else and how that would feel because that that imagery of the monolith as it is is so iconic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's true. And we wouldn't have gotten the awesome shot of the the sun and the moon. Yeah, aligning. The planets aligning. Yeah. (sighs) Love that. So I'm guessing we're all giving thumbs up since we all have it as a great movie. (laughs) Yeah. Thumbs up. Mm, Yeah, pretty pretty easy thumbs up. Three thumbs Um, up. (laughs) And then I I know what we all rated this on Letterboxd. It was all the same thing. Uh, (laughs) So out of four stars, then, the Ebert four out of four rating or... Up to four rating. What are you guys going with? Four stars for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's four. We all gave it five out of five, so. (laughs) In the same way of rating things, we gave it five and have to downgrade it to four out of four, but. Yes, yes. Oh, did you want to do, like, our favorite quotes from the uh, Ebert review? Yeah, I tried to sprinkle some throughout, but there was definitely one that I didn't get to. Uh, My favorite quote was when he was describing specifically what the monolith says at every point, which was, this must have been made. And that is just mm-hmm. such a, like, um, specific, overwhelming, terrifying information for every single point in that story. That, like, the apes are there all alone, and someone has just left this for them, and they have realized... This has been made. We can make now, 
and on the moon, this has been made in place here. There is something else in the galaxy besides us. And it's just this continuous idea of this must have been made and the evolution as consciousness that comes out of it that Ebert also talks about in a quote. I, he, he wrote so well about this movie. I, I, loved, yeah. I loved his excerpt of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the part that really jumped out to me, well, very quickly, the anecdote he shared that I really liked was the fact that the classical music was used as temp tracks. And then, <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's maybe the most perfect example of the common, like, filmmaker warning to, like, not get married to your temp tracks because then you'll want to use that instead of your actual score. And he just did. <laughs> he just was like, you know what? Can't improve on this. So I thought that anecdote was funny. Uh, but the quote I really liked from Ebert was talking about sort of how the film was misunderstood at first or how the, you know, the reaction was that, like, this wasn't a movie. Um, And he says that about Kubrick, what he had actually done was make a philosophical statement about man's place in the universe using images as those before him had used words, music, or prayer, which I thought was really evocative and really true to the experience of how it's so visual and there's hardly any dialogue you know in in the movie and definitely not any important conversations you know one or two aside um and how he really harnessed the power of image uh in a way that people hadn't before so i have a a quote pulled and this is actually um not from the great movies review this is from something else that I, i watched a um a youtube review by a YouTuber named Chris Stuckman, who's actually from Akron. Uh, I met him at like a uh, movie trivia once, but I didn't know who he was at the time. My friend's like, oh yeah, he, he like is on YouTube and everything. <laughs> uh, so he did a, a video um, about 2001 and gave this quote. This is from um, a thing that Eber wrote called Monolith and the Message. And he says, quote, but audiences don't like simple answers, I guess. They want the monolith to stand for something. Well, it does. It stands for a monolith without an explanation. It's the fact that man can't explain it that makes it interesting. If Kubrick had explained it, perhaps by having some little green men from Mars lower it in place, would that have been more satisfactory? Does everything need an explanation? Some people think so. I wonder how they endure looking at the stars. That's a good quote. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. I like that. There's mystery, and you know we've talked for almost two hours trying to solve this movie, and I think we've come up with some good stuff. But it's by its nature unsolvable, and that's why people are still mm-hmm. watching it. Mm-hmm. What fifty-two years later is my math right on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. I can like barely remember what year it is anymore. It feels like this year has been. <laughs> 30 years already. <laughs> 30 years long, yeah. So yeah, really good movie. Yeah. Would recommend. So you can find us on Twitter at Great Movies Pod, and you can find us over at Letterboxd at Great Movies Pod over there. Um, and then our artwork is by our friend Scott Brady, who you can find on Twitter at Artist. And next week we're talking about what movie? 400 blows. blows. Yep, 400 blows. By Francois Truffaut, who ironically stars in another movie about uh, encountering aliens. Mm, yeah. um, it's very cool. And we can get into Ebert's confusing way of alphabetizing these numerical movies <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> next week because 
<laughs> We're going from 2001 the, to 400. Sure, why not? The two, the two comes before the four, which comes yep, before yep. eight and a half. Exactly. Yep. That's that's as far <laughs> as you got. <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, All right. check that one out, and we'll talk to you guys then. Talk to you next time. Awesome. All right. Roger. Roger and when I go to the movies. I am that person on the screen. I am having vicariously an experience that happened to someone else. And that makes me a better person. That to see good films and to see important films is one of the most profoundly civilized experiences that we can have as people.